The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 10. Praise God for his word. Amen. Uh, Today, we are answering the question, can we trust the Bible? Uh, For some of you, this is a non-issue. You have experienced the power of the living word of God judging you and teaching you and separating truth from lies, as uh, Hebrews 4.12 tells us it's capable of doing. Uh, The self-authenticating power of the word of God has fully convinced you that it is trustworthy. However, we need to understand, even if that's the place we find ourselves today, that there are legitimate questions uh, to be asked and answered when it comes to uh, how and why we trust the Scriptures as we have them. Uh, Some who ask these questions um, are believers who, because of very active conscience, want to know that they are really obeying God and not just the traditions of men. That's a good motive for asking questions about the origins of the scriptures and kind of things we're going to get into tonight. Um, Some folks have an overall kind of positive inclination towards the God of the Bible and the truth of the gospel, but they find some passages too hard to reconcile with their understanding of the world or morality, and they may even think that they are Christians, uh, and they may not be. Uh, We wouldn't know that specifically just from that, but that can also be the case. There are some who are not asking questions at all, but they are bringing an assault against the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the Bible by bringing up certain issues. Their hope is to undermine its authority and and discredit what it has to say uh, about God and the world. Uh, The Bible speaks of folks like this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. Here's what it says. In whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so my point in telling you all that is we've got different people on different ends of the spectrum answering, or I'm sorry, asking these questions, um, but our job as believers is to lead with love, uh, to answer questions where we can, and be faithful representatives of the power of the grace of God. The grace of God that the scriptures say transforms us to be more like Jesus as we continue on our journey with him. And so that's our job. We're not going to be able to sort out all the motives of why somebody may ask this question. We're supposed to do is be loving, uh, answer what we can, and uh, be good representatives of the grace of God to everybody. Amen? Amen. Let's read 2 Timothy, starting uh, chapter 3, verse 10, okay? And we'll go to verse 16 together. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Thank God for his word. Amen. Uh, Of course, that's Paul writing to his protege, Timothy. Um, Now, before we can answer whether we can trust the Bible, we need to know what it is, right? And so just at at kind of the simplest level, the Bible is actually a collection of books. It's more like a library. It's 66 books written by 40 authors over the span of roughly 1,500 years in three different languages. Uh, That's a lot of variance. Um, but what verse 15 says, all of that is doing, the, the, the overall summary of what's happening in the scriptures is, 
what we see are the sacred writings that are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Genesis to Revelation, we're talking about one thing. Ultimately, it's leading us to the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And for that, I'm thankful. Uh, the fact that that is what the Bible is, that it's 66 books, 40 authors written in three languages on several continents, uh, different cultural contexts and all of that. Um, this is in and of itself one of the strongest evidences for the inspiration of the scriptures or the fact that God was involved in their writing and their compiling. Uh, because if you think about it, all of those authors over all of that time and you still end up with one coherent narrative describing God's redemptive plan for the earth. And so that's pretty incredible um, that, that God was able to do that. Uh, and I believe it, it, in, that fact in and of itself speaks to the inspiration of the scriptures and, and is a reason why we should at least give some consideration to the possibility God was involved in their writing and uh, establishing them. Uh, one, I'm not, I'm not going to spend much time on this at all, but one question that comes up in kind of this realm of can we trust the Bible oftentimes is... What about all the translations? Why are there so many Bible translations? And so very, there's more that could be said about this. Very quickly, just, you know, this is kind of real basic, but <clears throat> the overall premise I would give you is that different English translations of the Bible, uh, to some degree, had different emphasis and or um, goals. So, for example, like the King James Version and the New American Standard version, which is the uh, Bible that I choose to preach out of, they are, their attempt was more of a word-for-word -word translation. So look at the original Hebrew, look at the original Greek manuscripts. Let's do the best job we possibly can to get a word-for-word -word translation. So that was the goal with those. Uh, translations like the NIV and the NLT uh, were more of a thought-for-thought. -thought. So a little bit maybe willing to be a little bit looser with the words, but to help capture instead the thought behind the words. So they're looking more at a thought-for-thought thought translation of the scriptures. Not bad, just different, okay? Uh, the ESV, and there's some others out there, they're kind of a hybrid of these two approaches, putting them together. And so when people say, you know, some people just look at the fact that you've got NIV, NLT, ESV, NASB, you know, you've got um, HCB, you've got all these Bible translations, they look at that as somehow evidence that uh, something's gone wrong or that, you know, well, how can I know which one can be trusted? At the end of the day, all of these English translations, um, uh, as, as far as it comes down to core doctrines, um, are saying the same things. Uh, I, I have preferences one or the other, but any of the ones I've listed, I'm, I'm not real concerned about. The, the only thing that I would say, if you're looking at an English translation and, and you're vetting it for whether or not it's something that you want to read and learn from, I would look at key verses uh, in the book of John, you know, John 1, other places that talk about the deity of Christ. How does that translation deal with those things? Uh, and if it's, if it's correct and it's dealing with that, I think it's probably uh, safe. So, bottom line answer, why so many translations? Um, kind of different goals in, in what they were after. And so I think, for me, I have one of probably all of these, and maybe multiples, <laughs> of all of the ones that I just mentioned to you, um, and I'll cross-reference between them, because sometimes the thought-for-thought thought approach um, does a better job, or, or just helps me to understand what's going on better than the word-for-word. Word. My, my personal conviction is primarily for teaching the Scriptures to this church family, uh, that word-for-word word is, is the best approach, but that's definitely a wide open hand topic. Okay, so that's the deal with translations. Uh, so some, some other evidences. So I'm, I'm just going to give you a couple things to think about, reasons why um, it's not just dumb Christians only on faith that uh, have built our lives upon what it is the Scriptures say about God and, and the world, okay? Uh, the first thing I'll call to your attention is fulfilled prophecy. The Bible stands alone, far and away, high above any other sacred text when it comes to its ability to have very detailed prophecy, uh, not just kind of vague, you know, one day there'll be a dark cloud, and then there'll be another one, and then rain will happen. You know, oh, that happened! I saw it! I saw a day with rain. Oh, look at it. You know what I mean? It's, not, it's very detailed, especially when it comes to things surrounding um, Jesus' life, death, resurrection. I mean, we've got Isaiah prophesying uh, a Messiah coming and, and dying by something that sounds very much like crucifixion, several centuries before crucifixion is even invented. Uh, and that's just one example. So Bible prophecy, the fulfillment uh, of seeing that, that, that God inspiring Biblical writers, prophecy is written down, and then seeing those things fulfilled. I don't have 
with all I'm trying to get to today, I, I can't take you through anymore, but it is a really fun study. Go out for yourself, search uh, on, on Bible prophecy that has been spoken and then fulfilled. Uh, it says something about whether or not there's actually a God involved in the scriptures. Uh, the second thing I would, I would say is archaeology has been called the Bible's best friend. Uh, and that's a statement that kind of reflects the myriad of discoveries that have supported uh, the biblical record. From the discovery of the Cyrus Cylinder in 1879, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, that was huge. Uh, the Pool of Siloam, uh, as recently as 2004, archaeology has provided a, a credible witness to the truth of God's Word over and over again. Now, that's not to say, of, of course, that there's been discoveries that seem to contradict the Bible, uh, and sometimes lack of discovery seems to do the same. So there may be something said in the Word, and they can't find any tablets, inscriptions, ruins that would uh, kind of corroborate what, what the Bible said, and so that would seem to point to the fact that maybe the Scriptures were wrong in their historical account. Uh, I'm talking fast because I've realized that every single one of these curious sermons has been over an hour, and I'm pushing hard to get under 60 minutes because a bunch of people in here like to make fun of me that I can't preach under an hour. So, you know who you are. However, I will say this, um, really blame yourselves because you've asked really good questions, okay? And so, we're trying to unpack a lot, uh, and, and I also realized listening back to uh, the, the rest of the curious sermons, I, I've said unintentionally at the beginning of every one. There's no way I'm going to be able to say everything that could be said on this subject. That's true tonight as well. Hopefully what we're doing is giving you a primer, something that's going to kind of whet your appetite to go and study some more. So uh, we want to deal faithfully with these subjects, and so that does take some time, and I really appreciate this church having the endurance and the uh, excitement and the hunger to dig in the Word. So thank you. Uh, it's, it's honestly a joy to preach here, uh, and I'm thankful for you. So... Um, We need to remember that the truth about God's Word being inspired by Him and thus being true is not going to be able to be proven scientifically. In the same way, I don't think we'll ever prove scientifically that God exists. Uh, but this does not mean it's not the most reasonable conclusion from the evidence that we do have that the Scriptures were written um, with God's involvement. Okay? Uh, for example, many, many secular archaeologists use, used to say that David was a legendary figure, much like kind of King Arthur, uh, and that he wasn't a historical figure at all. Um, that is until they found the Tel Dan Stella, which is a basalt stone dating from the 9th century BC, bearing David's name and identifying him as a king of Israel. Uh, up until the Stella was found, archaeologists and archaeology did not support the Bible's reference to David. It was, it was basically believed that that was a mythical figure that, you know, we kind of made up. Uh, but eventually it was proved that God's word was true all along. David was a real person who was king over Israel, uh, and those who doubted that turned out to be mistaken. Uh, and so just, just, that's just a couple evidences more towards kind of provable, documentable, like the, you've got prophecy, you've got archaeology, time and again, the Bible said, you know, this happened at this point, this is where this place is, you go dig, you find it, right? Like that starts to, when that starts to happen enough, you, you, you can't chalk it up to coincidence anymore and be reasonable. Uh, so th those are just some quick evidences. There's a whole lot more. I could have I spent way past your capacity for, you know, blood sugar to stay awake, just talking about evidences for the, the reasons why um, it's very reasonable to believe um, the Bible wasn't just written by a, a bunch of wise old Jewish sages, okay, um, that, that hoodwinked us. So uh, let's shift gear here, gears here. What do we actually mean when we say the scriptures are inspired by God? Let's work on that a second. Uh, I'm going to read to you 1 Peter 1 verse 20 and verse 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This, along with uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, which we read earlier, is where we get the doctrine of, don't glaze over on me, I'm going to explain, plenary verbal inspiration. Okay, I don't care if you remember that, I'm going to explain it, what it means is more important than the term, okay? Um, so plenary means full or complete, so kind of everything. Verbal means the very words of Scripture, so all the words of Scripture. And inspiration means they came from or they are the words of God. So plenary verbal inspiration essentially means what we believe 
all the words of Scripture came from God, okay? Now, this doesn't mean that God put every writer of Scripture into a trance, right, and, and dictated word for word to them what to write. It doesn't seem like that's what God did. Uh, it means that God selected the authors with their specific backgrounds and perspectives uh, to be led by his Spirit to give us what we need. According to uh, verse 15 that we read earlier, he, he, he chose them to be led by his Spirit to give us what we need to have the wisdom that leads to salvation through Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, and that's in 2 Timothy 3.15 again. Uh, and this is why we see throughout the Scriptures different writing styles and experiences of the writers coming through in the books that God had them write. Uh, it wasn't just God taking them over there and kind of, you know, putting them in a, in a, in a voodoo trance and, and they just wrote whatever they heard him say. He, God in his sovereignty is able to take these biblical writers and uh, because of his sovereign ability to plan and work through all these things, uh, you know, he, he knew that um, some of the flavor of, of the way Moses saw things would come through in the Pentateuch and he knew that... Uh, you know, Paul's writings would be influenced by his, his own experiences and the fact that he started out as, as by his words, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, he knew that Luke the doctor, in writing uh, his a gospel account, that you know, he would focus a lot on the humanity of Christ and, and different details that the other gospel writers maybe wouldn't focus on. And, and these, these, this benefit to us because of God's incredible sovereign wisdom in giving us this kind of... <clears throat> Uh, this big group of 40 different authors, it, it helps us because, you know, it's pretty simple to understand. Even in, in, a, in a room of people this size, there's a whole lot of different folks. There's a whole lot of different backgrounds. There's a whole lot of different perspectives. And so me coming to the scriptures and you coming to the scriptures, you, uh, in, on your journey with Jesus, you, you may be helped by or find inspiration from or, or have uh, something uh, that grabs your heart and attention that comes from a different writer than I do simply because God also used their perspective. He used their angle. Um, and sometimes people will look at, say, the Gospels and, you know, different details of the same account. And one of the writers, um, you know, Matthew, who's a tax collector, is really focused on, like, the details of the numbers of who's there. And Luke's really focused on, like, the people and, and who's getting healed and, and all of that because he's a doctor. And it's like people look at that and they're like, oh, well, those, those, aren't, those don't say the exact same thing. Well, of course they don't. A tax collector wrote what he saw, and then a doctor wrote what he saw, right? They're going to see some different stuff. And that's not in any way uh, evidence against the inspiration of the Scripture. It, to me, it points to the wisdom of God in putting the thing together for our good. Because what he's trying to lead us to is the wisdom that leads to salvation in Christ Jesus. So he's given us this, this, this jewel that we can look at from different angles. And so uh, for that, I'm, I'm super grateful. Um. Many will argue that we cannot trust the Bible because men were involved in the process of writing it and also in the process of recognizing what was Scripture and what wasn't. How can you trust all that if imperfect men were involved? Oftentimes it's said. Uh, many, many times the process of recognizing what books were inspired by God, which is often re referred to as the canonization of Scripture, has been attacked, okay? These attacks have been answered time and time again, uh, and I don't have time today to give a full defense of that process, but I will say a couple things in speaking to it. First of all, the Old Testament that we as Protestants affirm to be Scripture is the same as what was affirmed by the Jewish people who the Old Testament centered around and who were entrusted by God with keeping it, okay? So we haven't changed that. That's been the same for a long time and agreed upon for a long time. Um. Jesus, this is also kind of a nail in the coffin for me, uh, settles it. Jesus treated the Old Testament as Scripture and as if it was inspired. Let me read to you Mark 12, verse 35. And Jesus answering began to say, as he taught him in the temple, uh, as he taught in the temple, sorry, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So Jesus is saying there, as he quotes David the psalmist, David himself said in the Holy Spirit. Again, this is, so this is Jesus weighing in on the doctrine of the inspiration of the scriptures. Okay, So Jesus treated, he also referred to Moses in this way and in many other places, Jesus affirmed the fact that the scriptures were inspired by God. This is just one example of him doing that. Uh, when Jesus weighs in on it, I, you know, rest my case. Off we go. 
Um, uh, moving, shifting gears to the New Testament, we have more than sufficient manuscript evidence that the core of, so we're speaking about canonization here, not very long, but a little bit, that the core of the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, the Pauline Epistles, First uh, John, and others, that they were in circulation and they were considered to be Scripture by the mid-2nd century, Okay. That's long before there were later councils that some claim is where a bunch of guys got together and, and just they decided uh, what was going to be in the Bible. What it looked a lot more like is that God already, uh, through the churches, was establishing and, and there was this witness upon, you know, among the churches of kind of what was inspired and, and, and what was Scripture. Those things were being circulated. Those things were being treated that way. And, and those later councils came together to uh, kind of affirm what was scripture and fend off some things that were trying to be thrown in as well that did not meet the criteria, uh, which I'm, I'm thankful that they did. Uh, it is important for us to also realize that there are reasons certain books were included and others were not in, in the canon. Uh, for a book to be scripture, it had to be connected directly to an apostle, so either written by or informed by them, uh, because they had a direct connection to Jesus. I like that rule a lot. I hope you do too. Like, if if your book's going to get in the Bible, like you had to have a direct connection to Jesus, or you had to be kind of, you know, Luke, we, we know Luke wasn't a, necessarily a, a disciple or apostle of Jesus, but he was, it's, it's widely believed that Paul is the one that gave him a lot of what he was looking at. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's believed that uh, Peter uh, gave Mark a lot of what uh, the information he used in his. So, Either it had to be written by an apostle or it had to be tied to an apostle directly because that tied it directly to Jesus and he's the author of our faith, right? So that's where that comes from. Um, so the book had to be tied to an apostle. It had to be in accord with the core teachings of the gospel handed down through the apostles, again, because they were taught directly by Jesus. So if a book comes along later after you know we've already got much of the New Testament canon established, here comes this other book that says, I'm the gospel of Thomas, or I'm the gospel of Peter, and it's going a totally different direction, the structure is not the same, the language isn't the same, and the doctrine is wacky, and it comes, you know, maybe a century or so after these guys were dead, well, I'm glad somebody said, hmm, I, I don't know if that sits on the same level as books that were written, you know, maybe a couple decades actually after the events where people were still alive to refute you know, whether or not this stuff was true. So that's, um, that's, that's a lot of what's going on there. So the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, for example, they were written way after those men were dead, uh, more than a century afterwards, and they were not in accord with the rest of what had been established, so they were deemed to not be authentic or inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? You've got Dan Brown and everybody else running around, Gospel of Thomas should have been in there. No, it shouldn't. Flat out, period. No, it does not meet the criteria. It was not tied to an apostle. Nobody knew who the heck wrote it. And it was totally off base and in contradiction to the rest of the gospels that were in harmony that were tied to apostles that were actually there for the events. So it's like, what are we talking about here? It's, it's silliness. Uh, the rest of the New Testament books we have were written within the time frame that they could be refuted by those who were living witnesses. So that's another criteria. If a book was written way later, it didn't get to just jump in. It had to be written uh, close enough to the events of what was going on that you know it was reasonable to believe that, that it had accuracy and it could be refuted by people that were around to say, mm, I read that and I was there and that's not true. Okay? Uh, so also... There's that. Also, we need to talk about the idea that if imperfect men were involved in writing the scriptures by God's inspiration, or they were involved in the assembling of the scriptures by God's inspiration, then we can never be sure what we have is God's word, right? That's, that's, the, that's the drum I hear beat all the time. Imperfect men were involved. How can you be sure? Okay. I really, I struggle to understand this rationale because God has always used men and women to accomplish his will in the earth. Has he not? I mean, when there was a Philistine giant threatening God's people, did, you know, you ever see a cartoon where like, like you know, this sandaled foot comes down from the sky and just, just crushes something? Like, is, is that what happened? Like, did God just materialize a big foot and smash Goliath there in, in the Valley of Elah? No, what did he do? He anointed a shepherd boy named David to go handle the business. He used a person, an, an imperfect person, right? Yes, uh, 
when the people of God were abandoning him to worship Baal, did God show up himself on Mount Carmel and lay the smack down? No. He sent Elijah to confront them and to defeat them. He used a man. Uh, when God sent Jesus to earth to be the perfect sacrifice that would atone for the sins of the world, did he come as an ethereal spirit that just glided around everywhere? No. He came as a man, born of a virgin. Jesus was born as a man on a rescue mission for us. And, and who does the scripture say that God has entrusted to be ambassadors to the world preaching the word of reconciliation and hope in Christ. You know, like the biggest task that's ever been handed out. Who, who, who has that been laid upon? Is God doing that one himself? Is he sending angels to do it? Who do he give that to? Who's that job been given to? The people of God. Those who have been saved by grace. So, it is in no way a deviation from God's normal practice to allow us, his people, to be involved in his redemptive purposes in the earth. At all. It's the norm. It's pretty much the way he does stuff. Uh, you know, dumb example, a bunch of you will probably leave here and go to a restaurant and put food into your mouths that by faith, to some degree, you're hoping and believing that someone didn't spit in or worse. I'm not trying to ruin your dinner. I'm just saying um, this, this whole, if a man's involved, I, I just can't. Well, you do it all the time. Because to go to the restaurant, you're probably going to get in the car, and if you've got kids, you're going to strap them in, you're going to get on the road, and you're going to trust by faith that a bunch of other humans aren't on the road aren't just going to smash into you. There's a whole bunch of things that you kind of take on faith that maybe, if you don't want to acknowledge one way or the other, that's fine. But at the end of the day, man's involvement in the process, because that's the way God has sovereignly decided to do it, is in no way a, a discredit to that process. Uh, God has chosen from the beginning of this whole deal with creation and all that. I mean, he made a big, beautiful garden. I'm sure he could have tended it himself. I'm sure he could have created some little, you know, cherubs with little ivy wreaths that ran around and took care of everything. But what did he do? He commissioned the man and said, it's going to be your job to tend this garden, right? So God has included mankind in what he's doing uh, mercifully and, and as a privilege to us, he allows us to be a part of what he's doing in the earth. And I'm, I'm really glad. Uh, I think if I was him, I probably would have cut us out of the deal because uh, we muck things up every, every once in a while, like all the time. And uh, so uh, I, I don't know, but he's smarter than me and, and he's merciful and he's powerful enough to get it done while including us, his messy kids. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> I realize that the you know the the food in the mouth thing and the <laughs> and the cars and stuff it's it's kind of a dumb example but I also kind of think it's a dumb argument that we can't trust that God both created and protected the scriptures uh, we won't believe that because He used imperfect humans in the process I just I just don't see how that in any way discredits what God has done uh, with His Word and uh, I, I don't believe it does and, and I'm thankful that's true uh, so now so one of the questions submitted brought up specifically Paul's letters and asked how we can be sure that he meant what he wrote to be doctrine and not just specific instructions to the churches that he was writing to, okay? Uh, so this is one compartment of an overall discussion on kind of is the Bible to be trusted. Uh, somebody wrote in specifically about the letters of Paul. So I think the first question we need to ask is, did Paul think slash know he was writing scripture? Let me read you some things you can judge. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Any ambiguity? Not really. Okay? We'll keep going. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And for this reason... And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 
Second uh, Thessalonians two verse fifteen. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. In case you, you know, were saying, well, what about the letters? He included those two. Okay. Uh, I, I would point out to you also that Paul Paul made a point to let people know when he was writing when he was when what he was saying was not a direct command from the Lord but was his opinion. So it's it's like he had this understanding that. Part of what he was writing was direct commands from the Lord that should be considered doctrinal and stand with the same authority that uh, other scriptures do. Uh, but there was also times where he said, like in 1 Corinthians seven twelve, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. Now, why, if, he, if he wasn't normally writing things that you should take as from the Lord, why would he say that? Right? So he's stopping to make this distinction. But the rest I say, not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So he's giving a specific instruction uh, as far as you know, family uh, practice within you know, the realm of Christianity. Uh, and, and he gives his opinion and he knows when he's doing that, right? And so he lets them know, like, this is different from the rest of what I'm writing, which are clear commands from the Lord. I'm just giving you my opinion on it. I, I would still hold that with some pretty heavy weight, uh, but maybe perhaps not on, on the same par um, as the rest of the scripture that Paul wrote. Uh, here's the question. So you might say, okay, great. Paul thought he was writing scripture, but you know, there's people that think they're a glass of orange juice and there's a bunch of false saviors all the time. So sometimes people are crazy, right? Um, so the question then is, did anyone else think Paul was writing scripture? I'm going to read 2 Peter 3.15 to you. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in, in them of these things, in which, are, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Okay, what's Peter saying? He's saying uh, Paul's letters are scripture, and also some of the stuff in there is even hard for Peter to understand. So, next time you read in Romans... And you're like, you know, your eyes are squinting and your brain's hurting a little bit as you're trying to really grasp what it is Paul's talking about. Um, know that you were in good company, okay? Um, I've seen people push back that, that 2 Peter 3.15 and the fact that Peter considered Paul's letters to be scripture on par with um, the, the rest. They'll, they'll then quip, you know, well, who gave Peter the authority to determine that? If you are of the opinion that Peter one of the three closest apostles to Jesus can't discern by the Holy Spirit whether something is Scripture or not, then you would likely accept nothing less than a golden tablet descending directly from heaven. The problem with that is, that is not the way that God brought any of the Scriptures to be. He's always worked through inspiring men to write them. Well, come to think of it, Joseph Smith found some golden plates that were supposedly from God in New York in the 1800s, which is not long enough ago to be on the same part of Scripture. So if you're looking for golden plates and that sounds appealing to you, there, I guess there is an option. Uh, I wouldn't suggest it, though. <clears throat> Paul wrote his epistles as an apostle who had encountered the risen Jesus. Uh, this is not a big deal, but many of the early church fathers actually considered Paul to be the legitimate replacement to Judas instead of Matthias. Uh, Paul, so I'll, I'm, I'm going to read you some scriptures showing you that Paul wrote with the authority of an apostle. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men. This is Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You could still, at the end of this, say, well, I don't believe Paul actually met Jesus, and I don't believe Paul was actually an apostle, and I don't think Peter should have been able to determine what Scripture. I mean, you could still do that, but what I'm doing is taking away any ambiguity. Like, the gray space is going to be gone for you to say, well, did Paul really know, or was Paul really writing as if, you know, his letters should be authoritative? Yes, he was. Here's another one, Galatians 1, 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
okay? And the other thing I think we need to consider that has incredibly heavy weight is that both Peter and all the other apostles believed and publicly affirmed what Paul was saying to be true. It says they gave him the right hand of fellowship. Paul came and ran all this stuff by him. And they said, yes, this is of God. Yes, this is in congruence with what the master taught. Um, and they were the ones spending the time with him. So uh, I don't know this for sure, but it may be that what Peter expressed about some of what Paul wrote being hard to understand that is at the heart of this question, um, I don't know that. If you ask this question, I'm not trying to be assumptive. I just, I've had conversations like this many times, and so I, for, you know, some of the motives I can kind of see. Maybe, maybe this is just a, genu- a genuine curiosity, not something that you're you know, trying to wiggle out of, but, but sometimes people ask questions like this because uh, Peter's point about some of what Paul says being hard to understand can, can, can cause difficulty, or um, sometimes we just don't want to do some of what Paul said. So, uh, but what we must always do is approach the Scriptures with the humility to understand some things will be difficult to grasp, and some things uh, you may not like initially, or even past initially, right? You may read some things in the Scriptures that you've come to believe other things that are contrary to that, and you your moral grid may not line up with that. Um, this can be because perhaps we misunderstand something that's being said, we perceiving it to be saying something it's not, or it may be that we have sinfully assumed that the Bible should be submitted to the judgment of our superior intellect instead of the Bible judging us as we are told it should in Hebrews 4. And that we cannot do, friends. We cannot come to the Bible and make it submit to our... Uh, you know, modern genius, because it's this old archaic book and it needs to fit within the rubric of my understanding. Uh, I'm coming to the Bible looking for it to cut me down, cut me open wide, and deal with me. Because I know uh, as long as I've been walking with Jesus, I've still got stuff that's messed up in the way I think uh, and, and sometimes in, in what I do. And so I, I'm looking for the Scriptures to, to trounce upon me and uh, to judge me and to deal with me because uh, I need the help. And I want to know the truth. Uh, so in, in thinking of, a, of an example of this, maybe something people don't like or is hard to understand, this is just one example that I'm going to work through quickly just to show you that sometimes we're misunderstanding things. Sometimes we just don't like what it says and we need to humble ourselves. Uh, so verses like 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 33 through 35, here's what it says. Written by Paul. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. <laughs> I'm not done. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. This is a sidebar. Uh, whoever has authority over this, can we get a pulpit that could block me better? I just feel a little exposed behind this thing sometimes. Some of those crazy stuff I say, uh, I need a little more protection. Okay, back to this. So those are verses that I just read, and they're in 1 Corinthians 14. To read these verses by themselves and without the context of the rest of the flow of thought, it creates an issue, clearly. Uh, you know, something needs to be said for the fact that Paul was giving instruction within a cultural context, uh, but that does not really answer this completely, okay? So... At first glance, this seems to be an overarching command that women are never allowed to speak in the church. But this is part of why we don't take one or two verses and grab them and pull them out and make doctrine out of them uh, or, or do other crazy stuff, okay? We can't do that. We've got we to gotta read more and, and understand what even he's dealing with. What is the context of the flow of thought? What, what troubles and problems in the church of Corinth is he actually addressing? Um, because the reality is earlier in the same letter, just a couple chapters back in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 5, Paul mentions women praying and prophesying and those being allowable activities. Titus 2.4 tells us that older women are to teach younger women. Um, therefore, for that and other reasons, 1 Corinthians 14.33-35, what I just read, read you above, it cannot be an absolute command for women always to be silent in church. Uh, if you just read those two verses, it looks that way. Uh, and that's part of, I think, sometimes... People would read that, they're like, whoa, I, I don't believe that. I don't, I, don't, I don't like that. 
let me get on the internet and see if somebody doesn't like what Paul wrote, and let's see if we can kick him out of the Bible, right? I mean, that's, a lot of times that's how that goes. Maybe that's not where you were at when you asked the question, and I'm not trying to put that on you. I'm just saying, if, if it's not where you're coming from, it, honestly, that is where sometimes that motivation uh, is, is sourced. So um, I'm, I'm letting all of you know that, that that, that can be a tendency. So um, however, you know, so we also know because of Paul's writings, we know that Priscilla and Phoebe and other women were acknowledged by Paul as even leaders among God's people. Of course, they were not elders or pastors over a congregation, as that specific role of service to the church and accountability to God is reserved for males, but they were leaders with influence nonetheless. And so what Paul can't be doing there is saying, you know, women never ever talk whatsoever uh, in the church. There's too many other things when we understand all, and that's, and that's why, again, uh, we can't do the stop and pop Bible read, grab a couple verses and, and freak out. Like if you see something that's hard to understand or you see something that's like, whoa, I don't know. Like there's a couple things to be going on. One, you could just be sinful and you need to submit to what the word says and be humble, right? Sometimes that's what's going on. Like, well, I don't like that. Well, that's because you're a sinner and you need to repent, right? Sometimes that's the deal. Sometimes it's like, I need to read more. I need to read above and below and, and around and I need to like get some study materials out and some commentaries and understand what exactly is going on here? What's, what's the flow of thought? What are the background issues that are being dealt with, right? So uh, the Corinthian church was known for being raucous and out of order. Uh, I mean, Corinth was the headquarters of Aphrodite's prostitution temple. There's like a thousand temple prostitutes. This is the context where the Corinthian church was planted. Uh, it's, it's interesting that unlike other letters, elders, pastors, leaders are not mentioned. There's obviously some, some prophets and some other gifted people there, but there may not have been somebody there really like caring for the sheep in the way an elder pastor should. So things were just kind of wild. Um, and it is, it is probable that men and women sat separated from each other. Um, and apparently part of what was going on is that women were calling out questions to their husbands in the middle of the teaching and disrupting the service. So just imagine for a second that we sat, you know, that we had a tape line down the middle of this thing, right? Uh, you know, ladies on one side, men on the other, uh, you know, and in the middle of the sermon, some, you know, some lady stands up like, Hey, Hank, you remember we were talking about that scripture last week? Isn't this good? You know what I mean? Like, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm, I'm in the throngs of a passionate presentation of the gospel, and you got that stuff going on. So that there was, and that was not the only issue was that going on. He cites a bunch of other things. Everybody was getting up at the same time, speaking in tongues, doing a bunch of wild stuff. Somebody's prophesying over here. Somebody's give, doing tongues of palooza over here. And then somebody else has got something going over here. And you got wives asking their husbands, you know, a question about this. And then, hey, what do you want for dinner? And all this, you know, so it's just, it was this wild situation. Nothing was done decent and in order. And it was disruptive. And it was hurting the progress of the gospel. It was hurting the church's maturity. And so, uh, he was bringing correction to those, those specific issues in that case. Um, <clears throat> and this is just one example, guys, of, of difficult things that could be a part uh, of someone questioning whether or not Paul's writings are inspired. There's a lot of other stuff he said that um, you can't just read that and, and walk away and, and decide you're done. Like, you gotta, you got to do some study, and you got to look into it, and you got to get some understanding of, of context and everything else that's going on. Now, what I just did in explaining that, some would say that what I'm doing is just cherry-picking what we want to obey or not based on our own cultural bias. Um, that, you know, just because of where we're at, I've just found some way to justify not obeying what Paul said there as if that command from him uh, does not need to be taken in light of everything else he said about women in ministry. Um, or that Paul somehow was schizophrenic. I, I don't think that was happening either. Um, or, or, you know, there's no sign, there's no evidence that he was struggling with any, I'm being serious, any, struggling with any mental disorder that would make him forget three chapters earlier that he wrote, you know, hey, women praying and prophesying, cool, right? So we have to, like, understand that within all of the context. Uh, but some would say I'm just cherry-picking. I would submit to you this is not the case, but we are instead looking at specific verses in context and also considering them in the context of what all the scriptures say. And that would be a proper way to approach the Bible. Paul affirmed women as leaders who were welcome to both pray and prophesy. And we have to see this instruction uh, in those specific verses about silence in light of those verses um, and, and in light of the specific issues that Paul was dealing with. 
so, you know, ladies, please don't uh, yell questions out to your husband in the middle of a sermon, but that's not really a problem we're dealing with, right? It hasn't come up yet, so good. Amen. Um, the accusation of cherry-picking verses to obey, uh, <laughs> So the accusation that comes from people or the fact that we don't hand out muzzles at the door for all the women is used sometimes. I said we don't do that. No, no plans for it, okay? Uh, so the, the, the people coming in and accusing us of cherry picking or the fact that we don't muzzle all the ladies, sometimes people use that to justify a sinful approach to Scripture, Folks that don't understand a contextual and a faithful approach to Bible interpretation, they'll say things like, well, that verse says what it says, so if, if you're letting women speak in church, then why do we have to listen to what the New Testament says about sexuality or marriage or any of these, these other things that I don't like, right? So you're, you're not obeying this thing over here that I'm taking out of context and I don't really understand what it's saying, so you're cherry picking. You're not obeying that, so why do I have to care about any of the rest of this stuff? Well, first of all, Faithful biblical interpretation is more complicated than that. Secondly, the difference is there is a harmony through all of the scriptures when it comes to many issues of morality. From Genesis to Revelation, there's a harmony about the way God thinks about that. If the command of the Lord is consistent from beginning to end in all the scriptures on a given subject, then it is not an issue of context, and it is not up for us to change based on our preferences or based on cultural pressure or based on any other of the factors that would make us want to figure a way to wiggle out of it, right? Now, that can be difficult because the Bible says some things. I'm not sure if you've caught on to this. The Bible says some things about sex, marriage, and you know, sexuality, and identity, and all kinds of stuff that um, many, many people in our culture today don't agree with. And so that, that's going to put you, if you're going to say, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm a Bible person, and I, I believe the Bible's God's word, that's going to put you in some awkward spots. And so but what we can't do is let people label us as hypocrites because we don't muzzle all the ladies, and yet we do believe what God says about marriage and family and sexuality. Those are two totally different things. You've got one issue that has complete harmony in all the commands that God has given about it from Genesis to Revelation. You've got this thing, other, other thing over here, which is clearly an issue uh, of a specific context and what Paul was dealing with there. And, and he himself said just a few chapters earlier something that gave clarity to what was going on there, that it, it, it wasn't just exactly as it appeared. So uh, don't let people tell you that you're not, that you're being a hypocrite because you'll stand on things that God has made clear we should stand for um, and, and, and you understand the nuance of context on the other side, okay? That's, that's all I'm saying. Uh, the last thing I would say on Paul's letters is that if they are not authoritative and God breathed for the purpose of doctrine, then we lose some pretty important things. Like, I don't know, the gospel, for one. Uh, think about this with me. Jesus paved the way for the doctrine of justification through faith and repentance uh, in places like the parable of the tax collector and, and, and the Pharisee in Luke 18. You guys remember that one? You got a tax collector, he's standing back away from the altar. The Bible says he's, he's so... He's so distraught by his realization of his own sin and unworthiness before God that he stands there beating his chest, unable to raise his eyes, and he's calling out to God, please forgive me, please have mercy on me. And then you've got a Pharisee that's standing right up at the front, and he's praying a prayer, something to the effect of, God, thank you so much for making me awesome. Thank you so much that I'm humble. Thank you so much that I'm giving. Thank you so much that I'm not like that tax collector back there. Thank you, right? So it's hard to sort out. Some people will say the guy legitimately was giving God thanks for doing those things. Some would understand that as the guy is just a total jackalope. I don't know, totally. I haven't looked at it close enough to know. But here's, here's how we see Jesus beginning to pave the way for the doctrine of justification by faith and, and through repentance. Here's what Jesus' comment about the whole thing is. you got the tax collector in the back, the Pharisee in the front. He said, let me tell you something. The tax collector walked away that day, and he uses this specific language, justified before God. However, Jesus could not preach the full gospel to us during his ministry. Why? He hadn't yet died. He hadn't yet rose from the grave. I mean, he could barely get people to understand that that was going to happen. He, couldn't, he could barely get them to buy that much, right? Because they were still going, no, may it never be, Lord. And he keeps telling them, listen, this is how it's got to go. 
right? So if he would have tried to unload the totality of what all Paul tells us beforehand, you know, I'm not sure they would have made it. They definitely wouldn't have grasped it because they didn't even grasp it until the events were done happening. So it took the Holy Spirit coming and illuminating uh, and, and, you know, giving them uh, supernatural wisdom they couldn't have gotten themselves. So um, Jesus couldn't preach the full gospel during his ministry. Um, and, and it's very clear that Jesus commissioned Paul on the road to Damascus uh, to be a part of filling in the details of God's redemptive plan and explaining to us, God's people, the fullness of the beauty of the gospel. And so I, I would just encourage you, friend, if, if, you are, if any of your motivation in asking the question was that there's things Paul has written that you don't like, um, I would ask you if you're willing to trade away the, uh, the totality of the gospel to get rid of the stuff you don't like. I wouldn't be willing to make that trade. Um, you know, without Paul's letters, we don't have Ephesians 2 that tells us that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's pretty, pretty important. Like, I need that one, <laughs> guys. So let's, let's not kick Paul out because of your preferences, please. Uh, I need Ephesians 2. Uh, without Paul, we don't have 1 Corinthians 15 that tells us that the gospel of first importance is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to 500 people at one time. Without Paul, we don't have that beautiful, succinct laying out of the gospel, the truth that saves us. Uh, it's interesting that by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he makes a point to say a bunch of the 500 people that Jesus appeared to, they were still alive when the letter was written and when it was circulated, which is part of how we know it's true. Because there was a ton of people around that were there for the events that Paul was writing about. And so this letter starts circulating. People are like, hold on a second, I was there. That, that, that didn't happen. It would be discredited instantly. But, but that didn't happen, right? And so... What's the reasonable conclusion? It's true. There are many, many more reasonable evidences for the trustworthiness of Scripture. But at the end of it all, friends, it does come down to faith. Do we believe that the God who is powerful enough to speak the cosmos into existence do we believe he's powerful enough to inspire imperfect men to write his word and to preserve it for us? I believe he is. I believe he did. The power of the word of God to transform lives, the power it has to endure attacks for all this time, the never-changing wisdom it contains are all evidences of its divine origin. I believe the most compelling evidence is the point of all the scriptures. So all those things matter that I just said, but I believe the most compelling evidence is what 2 Timothy 3.15 tells us is the point of all the scriptures, and that is the undeniable power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, here's what I'm saying, guys. Jesus, the, the word is important. This is in no way to downplay the word. I'm a Bible guy. But Jesus said something interesting. He said, you, those of you that believe this word, you are going to be the salt and the light of the earth. And to me, so one of the greatest evidences that this Bible is not just a group of archaic writings from a bunch of wise old sages thousands of years ago, the, the, the fact that there are millions and billions of people who have gone from darkness to light that were wretched and dead in their sin but now are alive and have been made agents of peace and mercy and love upon the earth that are salt and light. The gospel transforming lives is one of the greatest evidences that this is not a dead bunch of words on pages, but it is the living word of God. Amen. That's what it is. This isn't a dead document, friends. This is the word of God. And one of the primary evidences, listen, all the things I talked about, please study don't discount, don't discount everything else I've said because of what I'm saying now. We need, to under, we need to know some of the archaeological evidence that points to the fact that the Bible is, is historical and true. We need to know some of the prophecies that point to the fact that, man, you couldn't just make this stuff up. Somebody that knew something about something was involved in writing this thing. 
We need, we need to know those things. We need to care about those evidences, not just so that we are convinced in our own hearts, but because we need to know that if we're going to go out of this world and be that salt and light, we're going to cause an agitation for people that's going to cause a curiosity, and we need to be able to answer their questions, not so we can prove how smart we are, but so that we can remove roadblocks and escape hatches that would keep them away from Jesus. Because there's a whole bunch of people that believe stupid stuff about the Bible because they watched a YouTube video, and part of the reason they've not been told any better is because a bunch of Christians are too busy doing all the other stuff we do instead of spending a little bit of time learning some stuff so that we can provide an answer for the hope we profess. The Bible is God's word, and friend, you are going to be one of its greatest proofs. When you live a life that is completely consumed by love, when you live a life that is selfless instead of selfish, when you begin to look and talk and, and think and act and, 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 and you speak and, and you treat your family and you treat those that you work with and, and, and people begin to see the reflection of the glory of God in you, it's going to speak to the fact that there's something to this. And somebody may start out, man, they might, they might not be able to believe Jonah got swallowed by a big fish. They might not be able to believe there was a global flood. Listen, I don't need to fight them about all that. I don't need to argue about all that. I don't need to try to get them to believe that every jot and tittle of this thing is as true as I believe it is. Here's what I need to work on. Here's what I need to bring them to. What are you going to do with Jesus, man? Forget all the stuff that you're struggling with. Here's what I want to ask you. Can you believe this? Do you have, this, do you have a, a witness inside of yourself, friend? Do you understand that something's not as it should be? Do you, do you understand that there's a brokenness and there's an emptiness inside of you and, and all the things you've tried to do to fix it, all the things you've tried to do to fill it haven't worked? Do you have a witness to that? Do you understand that there's an emptiness? Do you understand that there, you were made for something more than you're experiencing? Do you feel like there's a, a gap between what you were made for and what you're experiencing? Yes, well, what I'm telling you is what you're missing is relationship with the God that made you. And Jesus made it possible through his finished work on the cross that you can have that relationship. Here's my question, friend. Can you believe that historically Jesus came? Can you believe you lived a perfect life? Can you believe he died in your place for your sins? And can you believe he rose from the grave three days later? Friend, we'll deal with Jonah and the flood and all the rest of the stuff later. Can you believe that precious gospel message? Because what happens, friends, when we don't let the conversations get drug into all the auxiliary and, and the next red herring and the next whatever, but we keep the conversation focused on the person and the work of Christ, the power of God and the power of his gospel by his Holy Spirit comes in and changes that heart. And all of a sudden, no longer are they 2 Corinthians 4, 4, blinded by the God of this world, but the, the blinders are taken off of their eyes and they are able to be able to look at this word with spiritual eyes. They're able to look at this and not only see foolishness as you do when you're blinded by the God of this world, but you then be able to look at this and see it for what it is, beautiful and true and powerful. So friends, please, let's, let's understand that archaeology matters, prophecy matters, apologetics matter. You know, I'm, I'm, you know I'm on that train. But what also matters is that our testimony is going to be one of the strongest evidences that this is not a dead book with a bunch of dead words, but it's the living word of God and it has the power to transform hearts and minds and people. It's been doing it for a long time and it's not going to stop. And that's why no matter how violent or how vicious the attacks against God's word gets, it will never, ever be undone. It's not going to happen. So quit sitting around wringing your hands about that too. Friends, the, 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 I know it seems like maybe in some ways attacks upon God's word and God's character and God's integrity have, have gotten more voracious. It's been going on as long as it's existed. Um, and God's people have been able to stand as a, as a, a light pushing back against that darkness saying, look, we, we, can, go, we can go point for point, we can go toe to toe, we can argue all of our little, you know, satchel full of evidences that we carry around, and I'm not saying don't have those, but at the end of the day, I'm going to tell you what, more often than not, when I've gotten into those conversations, what ends up happening is I'm able to look down in, into their eyes, man, it's the window of their soul, I'm able to look into them, and they can see into my eyes, and I can tell them, you need to understand something, man, I was a dead man, I was hopeless, I used to live in unbearable darkness and despair, and I'm telling you right now, I'm different today. And so all of your evidences, all of your arguments, I respect your intellect, but at the end of the day, you're, you're like a man trying to convince me cherry pie don't exist. Brother, you're too late. I've done had it. <laughs> With vanilla bean ice cream on it, the little specks. Come on, I'm sorry for all of you doing the paleo thing. I'm just telling you right now, man. You're trying to tell me God's not real? You're trying to tell me that God's word has no power? You're too late! 
I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. I've trusted him. I've done this two ways, man. I've done it in disobedience. I've tried to do it on my own, and I have felt the despair of separation from the God that made me. And I've also done this other thing where I've trusted God, and I've laid myself at his feet, and I've submitted to his holy word, to his ordinances, to to his commands, and I've found the joy, the peace, and the purpose that comes from it. And I don't think it's just because I'm stupid or uneducated. I might be those things, but that's not why I'm happy about Jesus. Amen. Praise God. The gospel is self-authenticating. Just think about how radical it is. Think about how scandalous the gospel is. Man. <laughs> Who, what human would have come up with this idea? Right? That we, we can't even... We, we, it's, it's so difficult to grasp. I mean, it, this... this it's, that's why Martin Luther said we have, to, we have to hear the gospel over and over and over again and beat it into our heads because even those of us that believe it and rejoice in it and have lived it, we still have to have somebody lovingly drag us back and beat the gospel into our heads because we are constantly trying to run from it. We are constantly fed this counter-narrative. What, it's so counterintuitive. How could somebody have made this up? The scandal of a perfect, sinless God-man dying in our place rising from the grave and declaring, here's what I require of you. Believe me. And then once you believe me and you experience the love and the relationship and the beauty of being brought in as a son or daughter of God, what's going to happen is you're going to automatically want to tell others about it. That's, that's what I want from you. I'm going to take care of all the mess. I'm going to take care of all the issues you cause, the fact that you're imperfect, that you're wretched, that you're headed to hell. I'm going to handle all that. I'm going to let you wear my robes of righteousness that I earned. You get to wear them simply because you're willing to trust in the fact that I'll do it. How do you make that up, man? That's, it's, it's, we're hearing it. We have it. Like It's laid out for us, and it's still hard to grasp. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons. The Bible's true. I believe we can trust it. May we be a people who welcome questions instead of being threatened by them. May we be a people who study and prepare for those questions as an act of loving service to those who are curious. And may we be a people wholeheartedly convinced of the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the perfect word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. First, to repent, because God, so often, we fall prey to the temptation to treat your word as a common thing. God, I've got every translation, doubles of some. And so many times, God, I am, I am distracted, I am pulled, my attention to the right and to the left, and so many times I fall prey to the temptation to treat your precious, powerful, perfect word as something of lesser importance than it deserves. God, may the word, may your word be paramount in our lives. May it be of first importance. May we treasure this beautiful gift you've given us. God, I ask that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, seal within the hearts and minds of the people today uh, all of the evidences and things that were said. You know, statistically, uh, God, we're told that we can't remember half of what was said today, but God, I want to believe for better than that, and I'm asking for the help of your Holy Spirit that we would go from here and that these things, they would would be inscribed upon our hearts so that we can go out from here and be faithful, effective missionaries. God, I, I know that for most here, this wasn't, something they needed to hear to be convinced. But God, I ask that we would have a passion and a care and a love for those that have not yet been convinced. And, and we would see ourselves as agents of change for that, as ambassadors bringing the, the, the hope and the, and the glory of the truth of the gospel uh, to them. And, and God, we just want to be effective missionaries. And we know part of our job is to study, to show ourselves approved so that we can go into the world and we can remove barriers and, and stumbling blocks from people's way. And we can seal up the escape hatches they use to stay away from you. We take away many of the simple rudimentary arguments that they would use to avoid you or to try to Uh, decree that your word is not to be trusted. If we can remove those stumbling blocks from them, we know, God, that 
by no argument is anybody going to be saved. That is a sovereign work done by your Holy Spirit alone. But we do know, God, that we as your people, we as your ambassadors, we as your missionaries, that we can be a help and a part of that process in, in taking things out of the way that might be an encumbrance to somebody. God, we, we just want to say to you that we care about it desperately. We need your help, God. Um, we, we, we ask, Lord, that you would Uh, Just give us a hunger and a thirst to know these things, a hunger and a thirst to be prepared. And God, I ask for holy boldness motivated by love that when the opportunities come up, we would not miss them. God, I ask that anybody here, anybody that's a part of Love City, God, that that maybe wasn't here tonight, I ask that um, may they never, ever shrink away from an opportunity to speak of your goodness. Because, Lord, even if we don't know the evidences of why the Bible should be trusted, even if we don't know all of the the facts, and even if we don't know know, some of the statistics, or we don't know about the, the specific archaeological finds, or we can't name off a lot of the specific prophecies, God, may we always remember that what we have is the truth of the testimony that you have changed us by the power of your Spirit spirit and by the beauty of your gospel. And so God, if we have nothing else, we have our story. And it's the thing we can preach with the deepest conviction and the most passion. And so God, may we know that in every situation, we are always prepared with something. And you said that you were going to overcome your enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And so God, we submit ourselves. We lay ourselves at your feet. We ask you to use us. Help us, God, to be people of your word. Help us to be loving defenders of your word. Uh, and God, may we, may we honor you in the way that we carry out this task. We give you praise and honor and glory. We magnify you in this place. We love you. And we are so thankful for the precious treasure that is your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.